Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. I'm very, very briefly going to introduce the person who is going to introduce our guest speaker. Temple Beth Am has many long-standing partnerships with important organizations around Los Angeles. One of those long-standing social action partnerships is with Jewish World Watch, which you'll hear a lot more about in a moment, but one of its main objectives is to take the resources that have been pointed in the direction of Jewish communities in peril and to use those resources to lift up other communities that are facing crisis. And we are very lucky to have with us this afternoon, Serena Oberstein, who is going to introduce to us a guest who is present to help us contextualize the entry into Tisha B'Av, which is a holiday on which we confront our story of destruction and peril as a people and to contextualize it in a contemporary, current, awful, real, ongoing, and in need of advocacy situation on our planet to attune us uh, and to allow us to put human names and faces and to create new friendships with people who can tie us person to person to that story. So without any further ado, I want to invite Serena to introduce our guest speaker to us. Hi, good evening. Let's see if I can. This better? I, I hope I can. All right, no hands. Um, hi, everybody. I'm Serena Oberstein. I'm the executive director of Jewish World Watch. Uh, we are an anti-genocide and mass atrocities organization. We were, we were founded in 2004 as a response to the genocide in Darfur. And now, almost 17 years later, genocide and mass atrocity have never been more prevalent. Rooted not only in our history of persecution, but just as importantly, in our Jewish traditions and values, we feel obligated to ensure that never again is a call to action. We fulfill our mission through three pillars, focusing first on education here in the U.S. with teens, a brand new college program that's launching in the fall, uh, and of course in our shuls and houses of worship. We also have empowerment projects in more than five countries mitigating the consequences of genocide and working to prevent genocide recidivism. We have projects in the Democratic Republic of the Congo negotiating child soldiers and sex slaves out of captivity providing comprehensive medical, psychosocial care, and job training to victims of mass rape and nonviolence, education for both children and adults, as well as food security in Chad with Darfuri refugees who are still living in a place of liminality more than 18 years after being forced from their homes. Our final, our final pillar is advocacy primarily federal legislation, but also we do a lot of work here locally um, because the California economy is so, so large. Um, our advocacy campaigns are currently focused on the Rohingya, an ethnic Muslim minority from Myanmar, Burma, who were forced out of their homes by the same coup who overthrew Aung San Suu Kyi. 
we're working in, in Tigray, which is in the northern region of Ethiopia, where there is mass, uh, a mass forced famine and um, gender-based violence against victims as young as eight and as old as 80. And of course, our biggest human rights advocacy work is focused on the Uyghurs, the Uyghur genocide. The Uyghurs are a Turkic-speaking Muslim ethnic minority group primarily living in China's northwestern region, known as East Turkestan, and also Xinjiang, which means new frontier. The latest crackdown against the Uyghur people at the hands of the Chinese Communist Party happened in 2017. But the scapegoating, the mosque raising, the dehumanization, the othering has been going on at least since 1949. As too many of us know, genocide doesn't begin with death camps but that's where we see it heading. China has built an expansive infrastructure of concentration camps and Uyghur slave labor factories. More than two million Uyghur, Uyghurs face re-education, torture, sanctioned rape, organ harvesting, cultural eradication, and death. While the world reacts in horror to the Uyghur crisis in China, these stories are deeply familiar to the Jewish community. Reports of Uyghur people being taken in the night having their heads shaved, children being separated from their families, being, being transported on trains are, one, are stories we know too personally. And while the stories are similar, so are so many of the companies reportedly committing these abuses while re-perpetrating their previous offenses. Volkswagen, a company founded by the Nazis that used Jewish forced labor in its factories, today operates a factory in Xinjiang with more than 600 Uyghur slaves. Hugo Boss made Nazi uniforms, and today they source their cotton from, from Uyghur forced labor. During the Holocaust, Coca-Cola created the Fanta brand because they could no longer evade US sanctions and bans on doing business with Germany in the camps. Today, it operates a bottling plant in the Uyghur region. IBM, which facilitated the Nazi regime's generation tabulation of punch cards for national census data, ghetto statistics, train traffic management, has at least three suppliers using Uyghur forced labor. More than 800 companies documented in various reports import goods made with Uyghur forced labor. Acts of evil individuals led to the death of more than 12 million Jews, Romanis, homosexuals, and differently abled people. But it was the indifference of the world that it enabled their actions to perpetuate. The question at the heart of Tisha B'Av, when the Jewish people mourn immense historical loss and tragedy, we must ask ourselves, out of despair, where do we go? This is what defines us. So many that Jewish World Watch works with are exiled from their homes, surrounded by brokenness. Tisha B'Av is not just a time to reflect on the past. It's a time to ask ourselves how we came to such brokenness and how we can work together to cultivate repair. We must mourn the atrocities, the baseless hatred that has led to the genocides of the Uyghur people, to the Rohingya people, the othering and the dehumanization of the people of the Congo and the exile of Darfuris for more than 18 years. A friend, Rabbi Adam Greenwald, once told me a short story about a Jesuit theologian 
who wrote that just as bread needs to be broken to be shared, so too our struggle and our grief has the capacity to open us to one another and soften our hearts. When the rabbis of the Talmud taught that the Messiah would be born on Tisha B'Av, they were reflecting a similar belief that out of darkness can come new possibility for light. And so it is fitting that on Tisha B'Av, we are about to hear from my friend and colleague, Dr. Nernisa Kurban. Nernisa, a Uyghur LA board member, is the principal of Harold McAllister High School, a school that provides opportunities to continue learning for young pregnant teens. She's worked in LAUSD for more than 17 years after earning her doctorate of education from USC and an MA of educational leadership and teaching credential from CSUN. Nernisa came to the United States from Kashgar, the Xinjiang Autonomous Region of China in 1997. Much of her family still resides there, although she's unable to be in contact with them. Her name, Noor, means light. And despite the heavy load that she carries, she continues to bring wisdom and shine light on the importance of human rights for all people. Please join me in welcoming Nernisa. This is not good. You already teared me up. <laughs> I haven't started yet. Good evening. Assalamu alaikum. Yaxim sis. My name is Nuna Sakurban. Um, I'm so happy to be here. When Serena called me, I was like, yes, Serena, take me. Um, she, uh, we were just having conversation on our way here, and we're talking about the, the questions about uh, Uyghur genocide and kind of, you know, my questions, really. And the, the part of it is that since 2017, I, you know, I was telling everyone that our lives have changed forever when the, uh, the atrocities that were taking place, still taking place in East Turkestan, that's the name that um, was named um, until the Chinese government took over in 1949 and named us uh, Xinjiang Uyghur Tans region and Xinjiang means new territory. And East, Eastern Turkestan is the the name that uh, people uh, like Uyghurs, Kazakhs, and other minorities that who live there prefer, and it it has been forbidden, and and then also the question came, why now, why Uyghurs, and the misconception about uh, Uyghur genocide, and I guess my understanding also has evolved since then because I. In the beginning, when people talked about or asked about Uyghur genocide, I tried to explain to them in terms of uh, the Belt and Road Initiative in, in um, Central Asia and how the Chinese ambition in terms of being a superpower um, kind of came to play. And then I realized that no, um, the genocide didn't happen or didn't start in 2017. It happened way back then. And I witnessed it. I have witnessed it, but I didn't really internalize it because I was living in it, right? So I was born in the beautiful city Kashgar. I don't know how many of you were um, aware of or know about the geography there. It's a southwest, south part of East Turkestan. And I knew that that place was very special because when I grew up, and it, the, the city itself is, it kind of kept the 
religious, some sort of, you know, like um, cultural aspect of aspect of Uyghur life. And after I came here, when I learned more about my history, which was not allowed when I was there, um, I learned a lot about myself, a lot about my ancestors here in in America. Um, it was it was the testament to my ancestors, right? Besides the uh, struggle and, and challenges and, uh, and uh, persecution that they had to endure. And they were somehow able to manage to keep that, that culture and identity for me and, and for us there. And I'm just so proud and so I felt so lucky that I was able to spend 18 years of my life there and learn who I was, learn my culture, learn my language and literature and history that were not taught at the school that I was educated, but through my, the family values, through the community that I grew up. And 18 years of my life. So, um, and then I reflected back on my, that I was I was happy child because my family I had four siblings and my parents, my dad was an engineer and my mom was an accountant. And, and then I kind of thought about what I learned from kindergarten to high school, right? And I remember my red uh, uh, a pioneer uh, tie and pledging for Chinese government and denouncing religion and, and, and pledge my loyalty to Communist Party. And there were 10 commands that I have to memorize every single day before we start learning. And then there was a, um, but one thing that I kind of felt that was a good thing was that everything was translated into Uyghur, even though I was learning the wrong thing, but I was learning through my language. And I I'm proudly say that I'm, I guess I'm literate. So in, I went to Xinjiang University. That's one of the universities I spent there for five ye uh, years of my life. And the schools were separated. The departments were separated where Uyghurs in one class and my Han Chinese classmates were another class. And they had to do one year, four years of college. And we had to do five years because we were, uh, we were required to learn one more year of Mandarin. And, and then I also saw that my, my uh, Han Chinese classmates were able to find jobs very fast and before they actually graduated. And my, we, were, we, we didn't know what to do. We didn't really know where we could find jobs. And that I witnessed, but I didn't internalize it until very late. And so one person made our, change our lives and one of the professors from CSUN, she went to uh, Xinjiang University to learn our culture uh, because she, her um, focus was uh, Native American culture. So somehow she found connection with Central Asian uh, ethnic groups, uh, Turkic ethnic groups. And then she met my um, ex-husband and said, you know, if you learn English and pass TOEFL, I'll, I'll help you to go to university in America. And that was that because we, we were not provided the opportunity to learn English. We never had English classes. So he followed her and he learned English and he opened up a, a, a English class and 
and I started there in 1992, and we saw the sign. That's how started, we ended up here. And sure enough, he passed, and we, were, we had three families in Northridge, the first Uyghur community consists of three families. We all went to uh, CSUN because of her. And she didn't ask anything in return, anything. So our lives have changed forever. And speaking of Uyghur communities um, in Los Angeles, we only have 300, 400 people. And um, I guess I am the one of the veteran uh, community members here. So you can say, you can definitely tell how small our community is, right? 300. The school that I used to work, we had 2,500 students. And so when 2016, um, my father, who was finally allowed to leave the country after 2000, went to Turkey where my older brother lives and my, my niece got married. So he, he was 80 years old back then. So he came to Turkey, um, and then my brother um, brought him over here to, to see me and my younger brother. And so he, he was very happy to see us. And, I, and in October, and he wanted to go home. And I said, no, dad, just stay. Stay, I'm gonna be on break, winter break, and I, I would take care of you. And he said, no, I have my passport now and I will come back. We will come back and we're gonna to go to Turkey together. So I said, okay, so he left. And a week after, somebody came to his house and took away his passport. And then you started to unfold um, that every single Uyghur, we're talking about millions, we are talking about 13 million Uyghurs. Whoever holds passport, they have to return their passport to the local police station. Everybody. And they, that's what my dad said. And then we, we, I heard other people were saying that, well, my dad called, my mom called. So that's how it started. And then 2018, um, there were kind of anxiety uh, about it within our community where there was a rumor or rumors that their family members were questioned and people were taken away. Um, there was a, a concentration camp where they're, they're building a big buildings and they were gathering everyone who were considered suspicious, meaning if they have family members overseas like myself or they were too religious if they have their beard longer or they had beard or mustache grown or if they have a, a scarf and if they prayed, went to mosque, or went to Mecca, they were, they were asked to report to police station and being questioned. And the March 8th, I remember that was uh, 2017, March 8th, that was a International Women's Day and in, in, in China, that was a pretty big deal. And that was the day that the women were allowed to take a day off and have you know, party, whatever. So that was the day that I called my sister. I have older sister. She was still working for the government as an accountant, and she didn't answer her call. She didn't uh, answer my call. And I called her again. So a couple of days later, my, my, my dad called my younger brother who lives in Corona, saying that, tell your sister, don't call your sister, my older sister, don't call her. 
don't call her. You can call me once a month, don't call her. Um, so that's that. And then I have a WeChat app that had all my friends, my college, college friends, my relatives, about 100 people. And slowly they just started to disappear. They defriended me. Everybody ghosted me. And we, it, the, the thing is that I can't really call, or I couldn't call anyone to call what happened or ask them what happened. Nobody would tell you because apparently somebody was listening. Uh, just 1984. Um, so then my information that Serena just shared with you just came out through news, uh, you know, the reporters that who went underground and took like a, a, a video and then just released or somebody's uh, testified and that's how we got our information and there was no way for me to verify. And so we're heartbroken and we were, we were devastated and we didn't really know what to do here in LA because I'm in education and I don't know much. We don't have any resources. So we were just, that's bad news here and there. Somebody, and we, we learned that our professors were taken away, all the educators, and they started to burn our textbooks, a curriculum that we were at least able to learn about some sort of history in the context of literature. And so, we're like, you know what, maybe we should reach out. And just four or five of us started to reach out. And one thing that we did was we just signed up for USC Book Fair and hoping that people would listen and help us and tell us what to do. But we really didn't know what to do. And, and, and it was interesting that uh, the variety of uh, people that who came up to us was in, in very different level in terms of their um, awareness or knowledge. And some people did know what was happening, and uh, some people didn't even know who, who we were and how to pronounce our names. And it also tells you volumes, right? And 13 people living in the west part of China, and they said, you're part of China, you're Chinese. Okay, but where are we? Right? So one-sixth of um, the, the land belongs to us. They dig up natural resources, technology, and we, we're not there. We're not in the picture. Our community was getting sh smaller and smaller. So it, based on the statistics, 95% of the population were Uyghurs back in 1955. Now, right now, maybe 30%, 40%. But the, the Han Chinese popula population has kept growing and growing. And this, when you go to Rimchi, the capital city, you would be amazed. It's just like, you know, New York City, right? And the city that I was born, it was very traditional, cultural, the city that every visitor has to go, tourist has to visit, otherwise it wouldn't count that they want to visit. So that's how they, I, I saw, I remember. And they started to demolish all the buildings and, and kicking people out from their houses and mosques, you saw pictures. And I remember just Facebook, right? The social media these days, they upload those pictures and people like, oh really, is that what's happening? Shame on you, China. 
for me, two days of losing sleep, crying, heartbroken, not knowing what's going to happen the next day. To me, it's trauma, not knowing where my sister is, my family members. And then one day we went to one of the events, just kind of wandering around just like a child and tearing up, like, help us, what, tell us what to do, help us. And then we saw a person from Jewish World Watch. And that's how we ended up pairing up. And I, that was the first demonstration that I went to uh, in, in, in front of federal government building. And everybody in uh, Uyghur community in Los Angeles, we were there. And we were so excited, so excited. And then Carolay came along and they organized some events and we were there. Went to every single mosque and talk about genocide, talk about what was happening and talk about, you know, pledging for help. Um, so the progress has made as, as you know, and you know, bills passed and there's a labor force law and, and, and just, I can't thank you enough, Serena, your organization, how much work and effort they put in. And in 2020, March, my father, I guess my, my younger brother, kind of call time to time, once a month, and um, he didn't pick up his call and, you know, on his cell phone. So we were very, very worried because my brother was out there, we were out there, and we get excited, we, we come up, we, we talk to people, and then the next day, and we were just, you know, don't know what's going to happen because we know how Chinese government is. And we're all our family is still there, right? So it was a very, very long two weeks for us. And um, then eventually my, my dad called, I picked up, and he said, well, two police officers came. And they said that I talked too much on the phone with you guys, which... It was not true. That's only maybe two minutes. We were very, very careful. We just wanted to hear him, hear him. And he said, Don't, tell your sister not to call me. You can call me once a month. Don't tell her, tell her not to call. So I guess that was the last time I heard about my father. And then on my 19th, May 19th, I woke up um, just, just, as usual, you know, you, you wake up and instead of praying, we just look out on Facebook and see if there's any news. Um, sure enough, there was a news that uh, my dad passed away. And my family members could call me. They could call me. They didn't. They couldn't. So the news kind of flew to capital city, one of our relatives, and then went to Germany, one of the relatives' relatives, and then went to Turkey. That's how my brother found out. And 48 hours later, I found out that my dad passed away. My dad passed away heartbroken. My dad raised five children after my mom passed away in 2000. And he was everything to us. He did a good job. And he deserved better. Yes, he was 84, but was healthy. And he deserved better. And I, I still don't know how he passed away. 
and I really hope that he forgives us. And it's not just me, it's, it's everybody, you know? This, this is the life that we live in. And some of our family members, fr friends here, they know, um, you know, some of their friends or families disappeared. Um, they couldn't dare to share because they, they were afraid, and I would too, you know, when, when you talk about them and if the Chinese government finds out and if they, they want them to, to be released from concentration camps. And it's because there's no guarantee that if you have to, you know, it has to come from them and there's a lot at stake. Um, so I guess it's really hard for me to kind of, I don't know, I, I go, go up and down, up and down, right? And I have a full-time job and it's a little challenging, I have to say, <laughs> dealing with teenagers and LAUSD is not easy. Um, and then I have my own life, right? And it just, it's been, it's been too long. It's been too long. And I hope my sister is okay. I hope my family members are okay. And uh, one thing that I noticed from our communities, and in the past, we, we would talk about, you know, who was, uh, who was sentenced to death penalty, like our, our professors are, uh, people that we know that we looked up to and they're all gone they're gone and then our famous artists and you know intellectuals and imagine people that who are like normal human beings that they're not uh, elite or influential and how many people are still there and who's who is doing their cause who, who, who's speaking for them right um, so the in terms of trauma, we also realize that it's really hard to talk about it every single day. And, and then we were like doing our best to, to bring a normal life for our children. And one thing that we're doing as a community is that we're expanding our Sunday schools to teach our language and music and art and history. Um, and then we're doing picnics so that we all get together and just bring some sort of normalcy. And, and we don't talk about this. We don't talk about this. Um, because we talk about this for 25 hours. It's like 24-7 ongoing. And that's where we're transitioning. Our community is transitioning to just create the space for, ourself, for ourselves. Um, I don't know the progress have made, I mean, because of everybody, you know, who was involved and who cared for us. Otherwise, we wouldn't be able to do anything by ourselves because we're just don't have any resources. And we do have a bigger population here in Virginia, and they're doing a pretty great job in terms of collaborating with other organizations. Um, but we haven't heard anything about that the Chinese government closed the concentration camps. We haven't heard anything about people that who were sent, like millions of people that disappeared. And I haven't been able to get information from my family members. And a lot of, we have some death in our community. Their fathers passed away, mothers passed away, sisters passed away, none of us. All of us here are citizens, United States citizens. I have United States passport for 20 years. I can't go back. 
Nobody. Nobody. So here I am. That's my story. Thank you very much for having me. Hello again. OK. Um, well, thanks again so much for, for showing up and listening. Um, I, I want to, um, you know, I, I want to think about sort of um, one of the things Nernisa and I talked about when we were driving over um, and something you said, something I mentioned briefly, but um, you talked about how um, the history of, of the Chinese Communist Party and that um, the Uyghur genocide didn't start in 2017, um, that it, it started in, um, you know, at, at least in 1949, um, that, that that cultural erasure happened. So can you, um, can you talk to us about sort of a little bit, give us a little bit deeper of a history? Sure. Um, so I guess this is also kind of like a learning curve for me as well, because the the oppression, the the colonization of Chinese Communist Party against Uyghurs. Um, I guess I now I'm putting my own experiences and my people's experience into a context, right? In the in the terms of genocide, what what is what is genocide? So, um, in the beginning in 2017, I never spoke about Uyghurs. Um, never, nobody invited me to speak. Um, and it, it was since 1997 uh, when we were uh, students at CSUN and people would ask me if I were Latina or nationality and I would say Uyghur and nobody would pronounce it, nobody heard about it. Um, and, and then I would add Turkish. And they were like, oh, from, are you from Istanbul? I said, no, no, no. I'm from East part. Like, I, I, have to, I had to literally show the Chinese map and pinpoint where I was, where I was from. And then I have to mention Tibet. And then they were like, oh, Tibet. Right? So you can, you can tell the, the struggle that we have experienced under Chinese region and how People don't know about it because we were not allowed to be present. We were not visible. I didn't think about that way, right? And since 1980s, when China opened up its door economically, and obviously everybody benefited except us. And, and then when I came here, I was like, wow. And the first thing that I remember, first thing I remember, I, I went to, um, a mosque on Granada in Granada Hills on on Rinaldi, oh, yeah, I know right? And there was adult school, so we were somebody was we didn't have a car back then, so somebody drove us, and I saw a, a church across the street, and I saw sitting on, on on down the street, and then I saw a mosque there. I was like, oh my gosh, this is amazing! Actually, people can live together, um, and I never forget that moment. I never forget that moment. So you can tell that I was v ignored because I was not given the opportunity to learn the truth, learn about myself, learn about the history and the world. So everything that I learned was propaganda. 
and I have to unlearn it and relearn it. Um, so in terms of misconception about Uyghur genocide, I think I, I blame Chinese government for just leaving us in the dark, right? Um, and then in the meantime, and a lot of times when people say about genocide, then they kind of like, we're talking about massive grave, right? Um, and and we, we don't know. Because again, three million people disappeared. Where are they? And there was a satellite image of concentration camps and um, the place that they, you know, burn um, bodies and and those are things that it came up and, and you can also connect the dots, right? And I'm I'm dreadful. I'm dreadful that when time comes and how my what I'm gonna discover, what is left. And the Chinese government is so good in propaganda too, because of their economic power, they influence especially the countries that totally rely on them, Muslim countries. And thirty I remember thirty-three Muslim countries, they they, they supported China. They denied Uyghur genocide. And they saw the picture. They saw how we were persecuted and, and labeled as a terrorist. And they just sat there, just sat there, just watched, right? So again, there are a lot of things that I'm still learning and reflecting on. Um, and I'm, I, I ask your intake in terms of uh, what do you see because your line of work is incredible. You're, you're, you can kind of like step aside and kind of observe and have that meaningful conversation, right? I am in it. <laughs> so I can't really detach my like present emotion too. So I'm just very angry. I'm, I'm angry. I, I'm disappointed most of the time. And it just like everything just stops. It, it, things are moving, but they're very, very slow, very slow. Yeah, I'll, I'll just I'll address um, what you said from my perception. I think, um, you know, Jewish World Watch, we, we work on a lot of genocides and mass atrocities. And there's there hasn't been one to date that has been where I've had such a visceral reaction. Um, and there is the systematicness that we see from the Chinese Communist Party against the Uyghurs that, you know, as, as Nernisa said, it didn't happen, it didn't start in 2017, where, um, you know, there are rat cartoons for Uyghurs, right? There are images um, of, of Uyghurs being swept up looking like rats by, by Han Chinese people. It, it's, hor it's horrifying that that's happening again. Um, in, in the time leading up to um, the, the, um, the Holocaust, and I'm not saying, I'm not making a comparison, I'm not saying that this is the Holocaust, but make no mistake, the infrastructure that the Chinese Communist Party has erected is as systematic and as egregious where, um, you know, the, 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 the locking up of intellectuals, the destruction of books, um, arresting people for innocuous crimes like having a beard or wearing a prayer shawl, um, you know, and the way that China has, like Germany, made itself integral to the world where, you know, they make the same arguments. They say, we're just, we're cleaning up crime. 
You know, these people won't assimilate. Um, they they use arguments around um, ending poverty by by pe putting people into forced labor camps, you know, and so um, that's something when um, when I hear about it happening, when I hear about when I read articles about um, the, the the system of of when someone is put on a train to when they arrive at a train station for how they're taken off to when their head is shaved. It is, um, it, it's, it's horrific to me. And it's, um, you know, again, there's, there's this, I think there, the misconception um, of what is a genocide, right? Because there aren't mass graves. But when you have cultural erasure over and over and people aren't allowed to know where they came from. Um, you know, I, I, when we were driving over, I, I told Nernisa the story of the dreidel uh, as, as my father told it to me, which was um, Jews weren't allowed to study Torah. <laughs> we weren't allowed um, to teach our, our kids our history. And so um, we would go into the forest and we would take dreidels because we were allowed to gamble because we were counterculture, right? We've always mm -hmm. been counterculture. Um, and when soldiers would come, we would cover up our books and we would pretend we were gambling. And there's something about, you know, Nernisa not being able to know her own history, to not be able to to do anything that would enable her to um, have opportunity, but to always remain an other. Mm -hmm. uh, that that is so striking. And and now, um, you know, since 2017, um, as people are being disappeared, as people are losing contact with their, their relatives. I mean, I think we're headed in a direction that, um, you know, if, if this isn't genocide, I don't know what is. I mean, thank goodness mm. the international community has called it a genocide. Um, but, but I think that, that when there's a misconception, right, that's the biggest one that people think, well, there are no mass graves. And again, as you said, we can't we can't see inside. We only have drones. We only we only have images of people with in concentration camps. Um, and so that I think that's one of the things that's most striking for me. Um, I want to ask you a question. You you said something about um, not being able to talk to your family because people were listening. Can you tell everybody about the minders and the the, the Han Chinese uncles? Oh, I guess that started I think since 2014 16 because I and how I were how I was able to go back and visit it's another story it's a pain even though I am no longer Chinese citizen it's just going to Chinese consulate and they when you do the application they read your name and then they speak to you in English I would respond in English and then the birthplace, China, and then they just completely change their attitude. They close the application, and they will tell you to, we'll get back to you. We'll get back to you because we have to check a background, and we have to call the police station back home, and then, and then we'll let you know. Um, and then the police would tell my dad that your daughter is coming, and then my dad would tell, okay, you're, you're approved, you're, you're going to go home. For one month, I cannot have a, you know, extended stay. And, and going back there, it's another story. 
So I guess um, I kind the, of... The minders. And the, the minders. Apples, yeah. um, so then when I was there, that was in summer, and I took my two daughters there too, and the, I, I, I've noticed things were changing dramatically. Um, that was the last, last day of Ramadan. Um, and I remember when I was a child, um, there the, the, the men would go to mosque and we would clean houses and day of, you know, waiting for um, fresh like money from my dad and my brothers. We would just wait eagerly and cook, clean. And, and then we would have meal together. We, we would visit cemetery and families. And that was the experience that I wanted my daughters to see. So I took my daughters there. And what happened was that uh, my nephews, my niece were required to report to school. They locked down the school along with teachers and government employees so that they don't go, they wouldn't go to mosque to pray. So they waited until 10 a.m., only elderly and people that who don't work for the government, the elderly people or good standing, they were allowed to go, go to mosque to pray. And it was like my dad and myself, we were just there. So the, 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 the memory that I had and I wanted my daughter's experience, it was gone. And speaking of minders, and that time, my sister was sent to a village to live with the villagers. My sister, she, uh, used, I mean, I, I hope she's still working and well. And then there was a, a movement where they were asking uh, male government officials to move in to um, the, the villagers' houses because their family members or their males were in education. It, it wasn't called education camp, but they were somewhere studying Chinese propaganda. They're cleansing their spirit because they were so contaminated with the religious extremism. So now, and then after 2017, the, the news came out and you see most of the guys were gone, the men in the family were gone, and they moved in to the family for the female and their children to live with harmony or live, and I don't know what the agenda is. And that's, that was one of the things that they expedite since 2017. Right, the, um, the minders and these uncles are, they're moving into Han Chinese homes and um, in, in the Uyghur region, uh, Uyghurs are able to have fewer children than Han Chinese people. And so they're moving Han Chinese men into single female households and stopping them from having Uyghur babies, um, but instead shifting the culture. Um, before, well, actually, I'm going to ask one more question, then I'll open it up. But can you tell everybody about the, the Xinjiang police files? Uh. Yeah, um, I asked her to talk about the Xinjiang police mm -hmm. files. There was, um, mm -hmm. there was a document that was leaked about a month ago, mm -hmm. um, and it... Um, yeah. Well, I'll say it very briefly, but okay. what it is, is it's the first time that any government documents have been leaked um, from, the, from the Han Chinese government that talk about their plans, their um, intentions, their genocidal intentions, um, their shoot-to-kill orders, and there are actual photos of um, 
thousands mm-hmm. of, of prisoners and why they've been arrested mm-hmm. and why they're in jail. But maybe you can elaborate. Yeah, it's just a, like one village. Right, right. Just a one village. Right, it's a village of Just people. a thousands of people in one Some. village. Imagine if you multiply, there's so many villages and so many um, the, the communities and the counties. Um, yeah, I remember clearly seeing a seven-year-old was in concentration camp and shaved, and the oldest was like close to 89. 80, yeah, yeah. 89. And um, I didn't touch, I didn't read it. Um, until I, 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 I come down. And that's, that's my struggle now. I buy all the books. I bought Sean Roberts' books. I bought everything, and Nuri Turkel's books. I have a stack of books, and I'm having a hard time opening and reading it. So that day, I, I had the day off. I had the day off. I had the day off because the village that uh, the, the that Xinjiang files uh, disclosed was uh, 40 miles away from my house. And I was afraid to, and we have some family members, relatives that close by, and I was afraid to see anyone that I would recognize. And that was a, uh, it's very exclusive and how the, do you remember the, 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 the crime that they, they had, right? It's from, and then there's also there were pictures about uh, torturing tactics and how they torture them and how, what, what the crime was, uh, just praying um, and um, reading books. Not drinking alcohol. Not drinking alcohol. Seven year old. I wanna open it up. Um, oh, great, okay, maybe, uh, should I bring this over or? Well, let's see if you can project the gentleman in the front, in the plaid. Um, well, I guess I don't have a one answer. And I'm, I'm also exploring what else we can do. Like, how can we stop this, right? And obviously, just organizing systematic, systematically, like what, how Jewish World Watch is influencing um, in terms of policies and action steps, and just tell people the ways that they can get involved. And that, that can be one way of, you know, um, just supporting. And I, I, don't, I just don't really know, to be honest. Um, so I would say um, there are a couple of things. Uh, Nurnisa alluded to different policies that have been passed over time. So, um, you know, Jewish World Watch, I think we first partnered with with you and with Uyghur LA just to get recognition of genocide. And then we worked together with um, Uyghur LA and then 80 plus organizations, uh, international organizations led by the AFL-CIO and the Workers' Rights Consortium to get uh, the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act passed, which passed and was signed into law by President Biden in December of last year. It went into effect on June 21st. we still need it to be implemented. So Customs and Borders and Department of Homeland Security have a list of companies, um, which is, uh, I would say, not substantial enough. Almost all of them are Chinese companies. None of them are the 800 companies 
that um, we now have some level of complicity, which you can actually look up. You can look up companies if you go on Jewish World Watch's website. Um, we have a Uyghur forced labor database, which uses corporate supplier lists, government documents, all of the reports that have come out. So I would say, one, um, call your representative and um, tell them to strongly enforce this act that if it doesn't get enforced and and companies aren't punished um then they can continue to support the chinese communist party and um uh and continue to um perpetuate Uyghur forced labor the other thing i'll mention and i know you guys are hearing um i know this this community is so amazing and has um an afghan um, circle of community and, and you're talking about talking tomorrow with with Hayes, who's a great partner of, of Jewish World Watches um, there is another bill called the Uyghur Human Rights Protection Act um, Uyghurs who live here some of them fled persecution some of them have turned themselves into ice to avoid going back some of them came as students and now their parents are in concentration camps um, they are at risk of extradition they um, Turkey where there is the largest refugee camp of Uyghurs um, are Turkey is now forcibly extraditing people back um, so if if the Uyghur Human Rights Protection Act passes, it would expand priority to emergency status, uh, which is a refugee or asylum status to Uyghurs living in this country and then potentially internationally. So so I would say those are two ways. Uh, and then the third way um, is if you're interested in talking more, have a house party. Invite Nernisa and I to come and speak. Um, and, you know, I think it's important to just keep talking about this. So, um, yes. Oh, no doubt about it. I, um, yes, I mean, I was, we were just having that conversation in terms of, you know, what would be the, the uh, better solution for, for our cause, right? And, um, and this, this is also a conversation that, or, uh, that the, is happening within the Uyghur communities. And um, we had, in, there were uh, two independent states um, existed uh, before 1949. One was in 1934, lasted for four years, and then 1944 to 49. So we had established government and for independence, and they got a lot of support from. It's it's a, a very complicated uh, situation, and I am still learning. And um, so there there is a uh, I wouldn't say di division among Uyghur diaspora as well in terms of what would be the solution for for Uyghurs and is it ever gonna resolve if we stay? So it's like a very bigger question, like how, how are we gonna go about it? And um, more we wait and more um, we, we, we lose trust in Chinese government, period. I would just add, um, you know, that, that the Uyghurs, whereas because they, um, have such a, a resource-rich land, right? That's that's the immense targeted persecution from the Chinese Communist Party. But this isn't unique, right? Um, they've been targeting Taiwanese people. They've been targeting Hong Kongers. They've been targeting anyone who's not willing to assimilate. And so it is. It's a pattern. Um, so absolutely, um, you know. I think there were some of us who do anti-genocide and mass atrocity work that feared that when Putin <laughs> invaded Ukraine that 
Xi Jinping was waiting and was going to shortly after go into Taiwan, and we're still holding our breath. Um, uh, uh, Rabbi Chorney and then Michael. Yes. I, for your first question, I think I'm going to ask... <laughs> I feel like I should ask um, Michael Barenbaum that question. <laughs> I mean, it, I'll say the, in the in the conflicts that we've worked in, no, there without intervention, right? And actually, in my first meeting with Michael, I said to him, "Is it is it possible to end genocide? Do you have any hope that this will ever stop?" And he and I said, what, "Is there anything that we can do?" And he said, "Yeah," very very calmly. He's like, "Intervene earlier, right?" And I think that 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 intervention is what has to happen that with this instance in particular there has to be there has to be so much that has to happen right we have to think about our purchasing power um but the the united states and we're also i'll say we're working with um we're working with Europe, we're working with the UK, we're working with a lot of different countries to also pass something like the Uyghur Forced Labor um, Prevention Act. But but no, we haven't seen anybody stop on their own. Um, I think that if we did intervene sooner, right, it, I mean, we're, we're past a point where maybe economic sanctions, maybe this will, will stop it, but but I, I honestly don't know. Um, as far as uh, culture goes, yes. Um, yeah, we're religiously, we're Muslims, right? Um, and um, we kind of uh, found our way to integrate our religion into our culture. Um, and I, and one of the biases <laughs> um, among uh, Han Chinese population is that uh, we're like good dancers. We, we, we know like, how to dance from since we were born, right? And and it's interestingly enough that that's the piece that um, when Chinese government produced its propaganda videos, you always see Uyghurs with traditional clothing, girls with that braids. We have to ha we. I remember when I was little, I had I have to braid my hair like 40, 20, <laughs> um, and dancing happily. So everywhere you see guy the dancing, and yes, we're good at it because we always dance. We have this um, instrument. At, actually, I have one. I, I don't know how to play, but it's called dutar, and it's it's every Uyghur community's house. We have dutar and an instrument that we dance and we sing, and uh, yes, um, but we. So that's what we're kind of transitioning now because we don't want to lose that. And we're trying to, we're 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 struggling. We're 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 trying to find ways to keep that culture alive. Because I was, again, the luck one of the luckiest ones in our community that I was able to bring my daughters when they were finally when I got my passport uh, when they were four years and seven years old. They're now they're 23 and 20. Uh, they don't come <laughs> with me anywhere anymore. Um, so they were there in Kashgar, and I had such a hard time teaching them Uyghur because we have such a small community, and I was busy, and their dad was busy. Um, so I, I felt really, really bad that I was not able to teach what I know. So once we got there, I just forget about them. I just give them away. And nobody would speak English. So they learned, they picked up the accent because I speak different accent than other 
um, region, uh, parts of East Turkestan. And they saw and they, they, they really, really enjoyed it. Um, they hurt my feelings when they said they, they liked their dad's uh, side than my, my dad's side. But um, it, was, it was very, very wonderful experience and they still remember up to this day. And unfortunately, the, the children that we have now, my, my brother's three ch children, they're not able to go back. And we don't know when. So that scared us a lot. That was a wake-up call for all of us. So now we're kind of coming together with uh, intellectuals here uh, in, in, in different countries, and we're fo founding uh, organizations, and we're kind of bringing the, the piece, historical piece, literature, and everything to, into documentation, um, or, or publishing our own journals, and, and teaching our kids our, our language, our culture. Um, so I hope that someday when we have a culture event, I would love to bring our group to show and showcase and, and invite you all as well. And, and I'll just use this as an excuse um, to learn more about um, other Uyghurs. Jewish World Watch's gala is uh, September 18th, and we're honoring Nuri Turkel, who is a Uyghur American who was born in a Chinese internment camp, came here, uh, got his law degree, and is now the chair of the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom. Um, he, he, it's the first time uh, Jewish World Watch is, is honoring someone um, whose um, work so personifies our mission. So um, there, there are lots of ways that you can get to know more Uyghurs. Mm -hmm. um, and, and Nernisa and I uh, worked together in 2020, is it 2021? Um, and we put together, it. yeah, we put together um, a Uyghur Freedom Seder. So if anybody is interested in seeing that and having a Uyghur Seder where we integrated mm -hmm. Jewish and Uyghur cultures, because there are a lot of similarities, mm -hmm. we'd be happy to share that. Um, I, I want to, I, I see you, but I want to, Michael Berenbaum had a, a question, so maybe I can ask the, the last one. The uh, leak about concentration camps. And... It's, I guess, they became very, very aggressive, and the uh, internment was massive. And so then there's no way that they, the world wouldn't notice and we wouldn't notice. And we were questioning what was happening. And that's where the, the whole uh, shakeup. There, I think it was, there was a, if I'm not wrong, there were a period of, it was something like 10 days right in 2017 where they rounded up mm -hmm. some, yeah it was something like yeah. 30,000 so, yes 30,000 people um it, within 10 days and rounded them up and put them in concentration and then camps. it it became millions and then two million and three millions and we don't know exact number they but uh, Nernisa she mentioned this that they issued they told everybody mm -hmm. um uh, they said you know you have to certain people had to report to to the police department, and at that point, that's when they rounded people up and, and took them away. Yeah, it started, I guess they yeah. started that movement uh, end of 2016, because my dad, um, when he arrived a week later, he was asked to return, uh, turn in his passport. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I'm, I'm seeing the 
the, the wrap up. Um, again, I just want to thank everybody for having us. I'm going to put out flyers and that way if people are interested in learning more about our work or want to engage or want to invite Nernisa um, to come and speak or have a conversation, you can do so and you don't have to write anything down. But again, um, I just want to thank everybody for for allowing us into your community tonight um, and, um, you know, especially on, on such an important holiday where we, we talk about how our temples fell apart, how our communities fell apart, to, to hear from Nernisa about how the erosion of a temple starts um, and giving us an opportunity to actually do something about it. So again, thank you so much. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.